We have been talking about the descendants of Abraham and started some time ago. We had begun with the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and we've been moving on and moving on. I'd like you to this morning to please turn to Exodus chapter 1. We had gone through the story of Abraham and how he was called and how he'd offered Isaac and then how Isaac had had Jacob, um, Jacob and Esau and then Jacob's family and down to Joseph. And last uh, couple of weeks, we had focused on the story of Joseph and how he got thrown into the pit and then he went to Egypt and the miracle that happened there and the reuniting with his brothers. So I'd like us to pick up, if you would, with Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1 on page 39, if you're using one of our Bibles in their books there, uh, book racks. Exodus chapter 1, and we're going to begin with the sixth verse. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation had died, passed away. This is a couple hundred, several hundred years after that occasion. And verse 7 said, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly increasing in numbers and became as numerous that the land was filled with them. And then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to the power in Egypt, a new pharaoh. If you have the King James Version, it uses, which knew not Joseph, not acquainted with him, because Joseph had long gone, had passed away. So verse 9, look, Pharaoh said to his people, The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So put them, put, he said, uh, so they put the slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom, and they built uh, Rasmuses as store cities for Pharaoh to store grain. But the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians became to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly, the Bible says. And they made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar. And with all kinds of labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly under the guise of national security. No political statement there will be followed by any current thing. <laughs> but it was under their guise of national security. We, we have a threat. There are too many Israelites. Pretty soon they're going to overrun us or they can overpower us. Or they can get up and leave and take all the wealth with them. So in order to protect the nation, in order to protect Egypt and Pharaoh, he felt it was important that we put these people into slavery. And so he did. Slavery. And then they realized they continued to grow and continue to go, multiply. Putting them into slavery didn't help. And so they continue to multiply. And so he said, well, I'll take more drastic measures. And so he was ordering that there was something was going to happen to all the boys. And he said, there was slaughter of the innocents. This is the first slaughter of the innocents. If you recognize, there was a second one at the time of Jesus. Remember that story? In Bethlehem? Verse 22, and then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born must be 
thrown into the Nile, but you let every girl live. And as far as I know, that is the first state-sponsored persecution of the Jews, which then followed century after century, millennial after millennium, of persecution of the Jewish people, God's people. Now, I want you to jump into chapter 2. Just go into chapter 2. We'll begin there. I'm supplying the names for you, but you can pick them up later. Now, a man, uh, Amram was his name, of the tribe of what? Levi, married a Levite woman, Jochebed. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. See, we're still under the guise that they were going to throw boys into the Nile. So she, she hid him for as long as she could. But when she could not hide him any longer, she, gave a, she got a pyrus basket uh, for him, and she coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it, and she put it in among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Along the bank of the Nile. And his sister Miriam stood at the distance to see what would happen to him. Now I'd like for you to notice that, that the Nile River plays an important part in this whole story. The Nile River had a significant meaning. And so here we have Moses who should have been tossed in, according to Pharaoh, should have been tossed in the Nile to drown, now is being used as a place of rescue. See? Into the Nile. So we have two things taking place in this river. Now the river was thought to be sacred, was thought to be a god. There were several gods in Egypt we'll look at later. One of them was the sun god called Rhea. But they were thought to be, these are the sun gods. These are the, these are the gods there. So now we have a river god. And they worship these gods. So meanwhile, what took place, as we come, meanwhile, what happened is down to the river came Pharaoh's daughter, who came down to the river to bathe. Now this was not only to get cleansed, but it also came to participate in the cleansing with the, uh, the god of the Nile, you see. So there's a spiritual kind of uh, thing happening here in their lives as she went down to river. And so as she's there and she's looking, all of a sudden she's, they say, oh, there's a basket there floating in the reeds. And so she asked her, well, go get it. And so one of her handmaids went and got the basket, pulled it out, and they opened it up. And they saw in there was a baby laying in the basket. So then they, her sister Miriam, she came and she asked Pharaoh's daughter, Hetzacheth, and she said, then she asked the sister, asked uh, Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Now, Patriarchs and Prophets, it says, angels directed Pharaoh's daughter thither. Her curiosity was excited by the little basket. And as she looks upon the beautiful child within, she read the story at a glance. She knew immediately what was going on. She knew immediately that some Hebrew mother was trying to save their child. And so they put it in a basket, put it in the Nile. 
But as Hephzibah came in and she looked at that and she saw that and brought that out of there and she came, she saw, ah, a blessing of a child coming out of the God of the Nile, you see. Now, we don't know that exactly for sure that that went through her mind, but it would fit the picture of how they perceived the River Nile to be. A place to take the death of the children, and now this child came from the Nile in her eyes. And so the mother, she was put in charge, and she took care of Moses until she was 12 years of age. And you can imagine that she was carefully grooming Moses as best as she could. So when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And when the child grew older and God arrived there, the daughter became the son, and he named her, she named Moses, and saying, I drew him out of the water, Moses. It's interesting because we find in that royal heritage, we find the name of similar things to Moses, to Moses and other comments that are made of the hierarchy, which would assume that they're talking about the blessing that came from the Nile God, had some type of relationship with those pharaohs and with the royal house. And so that concept of using that name, Moses, that Egyptian name, was given to him to mean, I drew him out of the Nile. You see the blessing that came out of the Nile, out of that happening. Now, I'm going to jump, and you can just sit right there, keep your Bibles right where they are, because I'm going to show you something else here. There was a, in Acts chapter 7, in Acts chapter 7, we find the story and the picture that was told of us, of, of Stephen, and the stoning of Stephen. And Stephen, before he was stoned, this was after Jesus had resurrected, uh, he's out preaching, proclaiming Christ. He's one of the seven deacons, and they brought him in before the Sanhedrin, and in chapter 7 of Acts, he gives this incredible sermon. It's an amazing sermon that he gives, outlining the whole history of how God was leading down to the Messiah. How that whole picture fit together from the time of Abraham, which they would recognize and they knew by heart, and how it led to the Messiah. And he was preaching this to them. Well, in a certain part of that, as he was talking and sharing this, he said, when Moses was 40 years of old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. So he left the temple, left the, uh, excuse me, the palace, and went out to where the slaves were. And he saw one of them mistreated by the Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Are you familiar with this story? He, what did he kill him? And then Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. And if you recall in the story, there were two other Hebrews that were fighting among themselves, and, and Moses tried to intervene and say, no, why are we fighting among each other? We are brothers, et cetera, et cetera. He says, oh, you're going to kill one of us like you killed the Egyptian? His secret was out. He knew it reached, the word reached all the way to Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh then started looking for him. He's going to jail him. And what happened was that Moses then fled to Midian, and he left all the way down, and it's hundreds of miles that he traveled down into the desert. All right, back to chapter, Exodus chapter 3 now. Let's get back to chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. So now in verse 1, he says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. He had married Zipporah. Quite a story. You can read that in chapter 2. 
So his father-in-law was a priest or was a religious man. And so Moses, he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. We know it's the mountain of God after the experience of Israel. Not, it was not named at this time the mountain of God. But Horeb was there. And so that mountain was there. And he led them around. He led the flock around probably to where there was more uh, vegetation for the sheep to eat. So he would make this journey, make this trip with them. And verse 2 said, then the angel of the Lord appeared to him. The angel of the Lord. Now we tend to think of angels as those with, with wings. We tend to think of that and going back and forth. And we see them, some have more wings than others, we think, and going back and forth. But in reality, in the, in the language, angel simply meant messenger. So it was a messenger of the Lord would be the interpretation as well. Same thing we find in Revelation. And the messenger of the Lord appears to him. And if, when we read down the context, you'll easily see he's talking about God. Well, in reality, he's talking about the Son. It was the Son, Christ, who appears to him now as the angel of the Lord appears to him in the flames of from the, that came from within a bush. And Moses saw, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up, the Bible says. There he came. There's the bush. I took a picture of it while I was there. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, he called to him within, from within the bush said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said to him, well, here I am. I am there. And God went on and said, do not come any closer, God said to him. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now my mind paused for a few moments on that. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Why would God say that to Moses? What was the purpose in saying, I'm the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob? In other words, I am the God of your fathers, the God of our fathers. Well, the first thing that popped in maybe our minds, we would say, well, he was simply saying, remember, I gave those promises to, to Abraham. I'm the God who did that. I'm the one that was there. But as I thought about this and peddled this through my mind a little bit, I began to see, well, God was giving his ID, you know. He was identifying himself to Moses. I said, why would God need to identify himself to Moses? Why would he need to say that? He'd been taught from his mother's knee. Why would he need to say this to him? Well, if you put yourself in the context that where Moses grew up, there were lots of gods, weren't there? The God, and we had talked about, there was the God of the Nile. 
There was the God of the Nile, the God of the sun, the God of the frogs, the God of all these things, which we'll look at later. There were all these gods that they were, they were the natural world in which they had no control over, which they assumed were gods. The moon god, later they went on and thought about that, Greeks said about the, the uh, gods that are uh, represented in the constellations of the stars. All these different gods were going around. All these different things which they say were controlling their lives from a natural way. And so here God says to him, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. I'm not the Nile God. I'm not the sun God. Why would he do that? Well, when we say he would, because he was identifying, I'm the one who's going to fulfill my promise that I gave to Abraham. That's true. But there's also, he says, I am the one who contacts us. I'm the one who reaches out and does something. Don't get that from the Nile. The Nile doesn't personally talk to you. The Nile doesn't reveal himself to you. And he said, remember, remember Abraham, Abraham and the offering of Isaac, how I stood and I came and I caught his arm before he slew his son. I was there. I spoke to him personally. I'm also the one that wrestled with Jacob. At night, wrestled all night. I am that God of Jacob. And then I followed all the way into Israel and took care of Israel and fed them through the hand of Joseph. I am that one. So, in theology, we would say, this is the transcendent God, the God from the heaven who came to be and to come down to us. So I am the God who contacts you. You would not find me. You would not see me anywhere. You would not be there if I hadn't reached out and contacted you. I am the first one. I am the one who acts. Not by some blowing of the wind, not by some dark day, not by the sun being eclipsed, not that kind of thing. It's not that I am the God who actually reaches down to you in time and space. And then he also says, he goes on and said, I am the God who saves. I am the God who saves. I'm going to fulfill my promise that I made to make you a great nation. And we'll deal with that later. And I am the God who offers forgiveness. Does the river Nile offer forgiveness? No. The sun God offer forgiveness? No. Oh, they made sacrifices to it, to hoping that they would have a good harvest. Oh, they made sacrifices to the Nile that it wouldn't flood them out. Or a nearing drought that would get more rain. Made all these kind of things they did to them. But, <laughs> sorry, doesn't save. I am the one. God said, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. That's who I am. And I am the one who loves us. I am the one who loves. Not other people. Not others. They don't love you. The Nile doesn't love you. Sun God doesn't love you. I am the one who loves you. I am the one who will act. I am the one who will intervene. So I want to ask you something serious today. Does your God have a different ID 
important that. What I mean by that, you see, the Egyptians, in order to have the Nile God, had to create it in their mind. They had to create the sun god, all the others. The Greeks had to create the moon god and the, and the constellation gods, and they all were created in their own mind. So their gods had a different ID as to what they would be, how they would identify themselves, how we would know them. But that's not the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He didn't ID himself like that. It's not some creation. It's not something that even good biblical theologians put together. Some would say, well, I'm not sure God exists. I'm not sure he exists. Well, I can assure you the River Nile God does not exist. The Sun God does not exist. Constellation gods do not exist. The Moon God does not exist. Baal does not exist. All creations of man do not exist. I'm not sure God likes me. I'm not sure God likes me. For God, say this with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. First Bible text I ever learned. Most popular Bible text. John 3.16. John 3.16. I was watching a football game uh, some years ago and talking about the changing culture. And someone had put a huge banner up on part of the stadium in white with black lettering, bold black lettering that said, John 3.16. And I saw it as they were panning around, as the color commentators, they were getting ready for the game, were talking about the game, blah, blah, blah. And I saw that sign. And one of the color guys noticed that we were focused on that sign, and he says, oh, well, look at that. I, I wonder if that's uh, John so-and-so, who was our quarter, quarterback statistics. What? And the other guy didn't correct him, say, no, that's a Bible text. Never, no, nobody caught on to that, that there was something significant in that Bible text. For God so loved the world. You see, it isn't knowing if God loves me or likes me. It's God already has said, I do love you. Already. Before you ever loved me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So I already laid down my life for you long before, long before. Don't talk to me that I don't love you. <laughs> I paid my life for you. He's the God you know, the God of Abraham and of Isaac 
and in Jacob. Is that the God you know? Is he the one who keeps his promises? Is he the one who's contacting you? Contact is us. Is he the one who saves you? Is he the one who loves you? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Then this very little ending piece. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. He'd been looking at God in the burning bush. Well, that's conversation. But when he said, I'm the God of Isaac, I'm God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am that God. He then hid his face because he realized that the God he was talking to was more than the Nile, more than the sun, more than the constellation, more than the moon. He was talking to the real God, the only God, the holy God, the God who knows no beginning and no end. The God who loves, who keeps his promises, who contacts us, who forgives us. It's that God. Next week we will, we will deal more with the bush, what happened at the burning bush. Something incredible happened there. In more ways than we commonly think. We'll look at that next week. But this week, would you examine in your heart, look and see. Is the God that I know, the God that I think about, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob? Dear Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this powerful story. And you identified yourself, you ID'd yourself to them so that we would know how rich and how deep that ran. How would they know? Just, just no more than your promises, but they identified yourself as a God who really cares, who's involved, who came down, who brings salvation, who brings forgiveness, who will not let this world go on forever and ever, but will, Lord, you will take and heal us and take us home. I thank you for that promises you gave to us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. <laughs>